rum was widely perceived as being oversweetened. It still is. Um, and, and that was my experience as well. I would go and buy a bottle of a rum that I loved. Um, but I would always be like, gosh, I just wish that it wasn't sweet. And rum is not sweet. There's nothing about rum off the still that is sweet. That is always added sweet. And so I was really focused on like, does it have to be this way? Like why, what's the deal here? Welcome to the Cooler Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kuehlhorn, and I'm excited to have you join me as I interview community members and business leaders from the communities in which I live, work, and serve through my business, Cooler Garage Doors. We're gonna bring you highlights on characters in our communities. Why? Because community matters, and I wanna know more about who is behind our business and leadership in order to understand and support the community fabric that our relationships make up. And collectively, we can build stronger communities that support our lifestyles, our youth, and our health. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Cooler Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kuehlhorn, and today we have Karen Hoskins joining us. She is the owner and founder of Montagna Distillers, and I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about distillery, rum, and your story, Karen. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, you're up in Crested Butte. Um, one question I'd love to ask initially is, where did you grow up? Ah, uh, well, I was born in the Bronx. <laughs> um, my dad was at Fordham Law School when I was born. So they were living in a very tiny little apartment in the Bronx when I was born. And then um, quite soon after that, when I was almost one and a half or two years old, they moved to Maine. So really, I grew up in Maine. Um, my dad worked for the Bank of Maine um, and moved. We moved 11 times while I was growing up. So I can't really tell you a town. Um, I can tell you that we we cruised around a lot. <laughs> How did the Gunnison Valley and Crested Butte find you or you it? Um, my husband is from Grand Junction. So we met in college in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, we met at Williams College, which is a liberal arts college up in the Berkshire Mountains. Um, and soon after graduation, I went out to Grand Junction and visited his family. And then I ended up in San Francisco, but I kept getting drawn back to Colorado. Uh, eventually, he and I lived in Arizona for 10 years together and got married and did all that. Um, but we were still always drawn back to Colorado. So it's been 24. 25 years now that we've been in Colorado. And um, what do you love about the area and being part of this community? Oh my gosh, that is a very long list. Let's see. I mean, I spent, we spent a decade in Silverton, Colorado, yeah. which we loved. That's where we raised our kids, um, you know, through about sixth and eighth grade and in a beautiful school up there. But um, it was pretty clear to us that it was a little small. Um, so when we moved here, it was kind of funny. People were like, oh, do you know how small a town this is? Do you know how long the the off seasons are? And we just were chuckling because, of course, you know, Silverton, everything's like that on steroids. So um, I, you know, we're serious about backcountry skiing, Nordic skiing, 
we ride mountain bikes and road bikes and um, trail run and, you know, just basically everything. I, I can't really think of a lot of things that we wouldn't do um, if invited or if we decided we wanted to set out. We love to camp. Um, so it's just a perfect place for everything we love to do. Plus, we found the business community here when we moved here in 2011. Um, we found it much more approachable and professional than what we had been encountering in uh, in Silverton. So, um, you know, that we've had our days since then, wondering if that was, you know, if that was 100% the case, but um, we've generally found this to be, especially with Riverland and some of the, um, you know, some of the infrastructure that this community has, we found it to be a better fit for the the companies that we've had and run during the almost 12 years that we've been here. Yeah, that's awesome. So as I understand it, you've been an entrepreneur for a while. You have Montagna Distillers, a new distillery down in Riverland. Tell me about that journey. How'd you get into distillery, distilling, and like specifically rum? Mm. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so back in 2008, I was a graphic designer and a brand builder and a web designer. And I'd had my own private practice for about 12 years at that point. Um, and I was very, you know, focused on helping other companies to define themselves, to build out their brand identities and to put themselves out into the public in a way that was cohesive and identifiable and uh, good for their company. <laughs> Excuse me, recovering. Um, good thing we're on Zoom. Um, so I, um, you know, that I'd been doing for more than 10 years. And I just literally woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm kind of ready to do this for myself, my own brand, my own ideas, instead of handing everything off um, to other people. So that pretty much was from one day to the next. Um, and I thought about what I loved and what I wanted to do. And I could see, so back in like 1992, I had thought about starting a brewery um, in Flagstaff, Arizona, where there are now like three craft breweries and they do really well. And, I, you know, I think the idea itself was pretty awesome. I think it was, you know, it was good. The problem was I'm celiac. Um, I couldn't drink beer. I didn't drink beer. I don't drink beer. I never have. So um, it was a, it was a, not a great fit. Um, so, but the the trend that I saw in in 1992 was really it really bore itself out in the marketplace, and so then in 2008 I saw the same trend coming into the world of craft distilling, and I thought, now there's a fit because even though I don't drink a ton, um, I when I do drink, I usually love to have a really good cocktail, um, and so. In my life, I had been become somewhat known among my peers for being that person that you invite to your dinner party because she will come with the really good, um, in my case, really good rum and yeah. um, ready to make cocktails for the whole group. And, um, and, you know, usually it was something that no one had ever heard of. You know, if it was the holidays, I was making, you know, 
South American cocktails that nobody had ever heard of. So it was just kind of my thing. Uh, we all have our thing. And um, and that I'd been doing for a very long time, probably you know, 10, 12 years um, at family gatherings and gatherings of friends. And I said at, in you know 2008, I was like, I want to make rum. Like that's what I want to make. I love the spirit. It doesn't ever bother me the way many other spirits do. And we could have a long conversation, whole separate podcast about what people don't understand about the way alcohol is made and some of the additives and how it can affect people with, say, celiac disease or other types of, of illnesses. And so, um, yeah, so I just wanted to make rum and you know, it was a little premature because the world didn't really yet understand rum. The world didn't understand how good rum could be, that it was as good, if not better than many of the whiskeys and bourbons and scotches that were in the marketplace. Um, and I, you know, I was like, but that's what I want to do. That's what I love. That's what I can stay excited about. You know, now I'm almost at the 15 year mark um, and I've managed to stay excited about rum all that time. And I can tell you everything that I imagined might happen has happened. So obviously most people know about the crazy boom of um, of craft spirits around the country, around the world. Um, people know about the crazy boom of craft cocktails, you know, and in, in, when I started this company in 08, there was not a craft cocktail boom. Rum was not well-recognized. American rum was definitely not well-recognized. Um, so many different little hurdles that we had to clear for such a long time. Um, but we're here today, you know, 2022, um, with premium rum being one of the fastest growing categories in the alcohol beverage world. Um, premium rum, rum in general, just overtook whiskey in the UK and the EU for the first time in history in 2021. So that was a big deal. Um, and then for me personally, you know, I've managed to really be part of the movement of helping people to understand the, the industry, the business, um, craft rum, American rum. I've helped to establish American rum with some credibility um, in the in the world, and then also, um, you know, employ people in a seasonal ski town on a more of a year round basis um, with higher than average wages and and uh, an exportable good, which those are very unusual and rare things in a town like Crested Butte. Yes, this is amazing. I love the story. So have you always been that visionary? Have you always seen or sensed trends? I mean, you mentioned the brewery, the microbrewery, kind of catching the wave of micro distillery, you know, specialty cocktails. Has that been a part of your life for long term? Um a good, it's a good question. I worked for a Fortune 500 company for a period of my career, um, and I was really in their trend division. So we would, they would send us trend shopping. Uh, it was a fascinating, cool thing to be able to do. You know, send you with the company credit card out to LA or something, and you just spend four or five days cruising around to find out what was happening what people were doing, what was cutting edge. Um, but, you know, it's a good question. It's like, was that, was I trend 
visionary or was I just trend recognizing? Um, I think ultimately I was, I'm better at recognizing trends that are already underway than I am imagining what the next trend might be. Um, so yeah, I felt I've, I've really enjoyed often sort of saying, yeah, that's going to fly. That's going to go watch what happens over the next five years. That's going to take off. Um, but I also am, um, you know, I would say that I'm not someone who uh, can can necessarily come up with what the new thing is going to be. I'm a follower. Yeah. 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 An observer, catch and wave, copy that. And you mentioned, and I understand, like, this is opening up a rabbit hole that can go insanely deep. I can only imagine because you get into a level of refinement and hard, real art when you're talking about, you know, creating, distilling, um and i'm curious so you know it sounds like rum was just a, a personal interest and then you went down into the almost i mean it's it's got to be some science and some art at the same time combined for real distilling um and without giving away any real secrets but what's what's some of the differences in montagna's rum versus other distilleries distillers? It's a good question. I mean, you know, so I've been, I was trained and I always call it, you know, the trial by fire. Um, I started a rum distillery before I really honestly knew how to distill rum. Um, I had some amazing mentors and some people who taught me a lot. And I, you know, we, as a group of three, we began as just three of us, um, did a lot of work to really cultivate a lot of, you know, in, intelligence about what it takes to make spirits. There's a lot of resources out there in the world. So um, I wasn't flying totally blind, but I was definitely, as they say, sort of building my wings after I took off from the perch. Um, but also I would say, yeah, so art and, and science both really deeply ingrained in the, in the business. Um, for me, I would say that you know, probably one of the biggest things has been that I want, when I started, rum was widely perceived as being oversweetened. It still is. Um, and, and that was my experience as well. I would go and buy a bottle of a rum that I loved. Um, but I would always be like, gosh, I just wish that it wasn't sweet. And rum is not sweet. There's nothing about rum off the still that is sweet. That is always added sweet. And so I was really focused on like, does it have to be this way? Like why, what's the deal here? Um, why are people adding so much sugar to rum after it's been distilled? Um, and, and really it came down to the fact that people were making some pretty crummy rum and the rum itself was not of a quality that you would sit down and take a sip of. You'd have to adulterate it in order to make it palatable to the average consumer. Interesting. So, you know, again, almost 15 years ago, we weren't having conversations like we are now about how much sugar there is in rum and how many and what companies are not doing it that way. We were one of the first um, to really promote and and talk about not adding sugar to our rum mm -hmm. and uh, no, you know, no additives in general. 
Um, and so that be, that has now become the absolute, you know, narrative of premium rum is like how much, what are people doing to adulterate it? And that includes adding color. It includes adding sweetness, um, you know, things that make it, it approximate an aged spirit when it's not aged. Um, you can do that with glycerin and propylene glycol and all of these, you know, chemical additives. But also it came down to origin ingredients. Um, we buy all of our sugarcane from family farmers in Louisiana that we, you know, actually know from here in the Gunnison Valley. It's the coolest thing. Um, they came into our distillery um, when we were sourcing our sugarcane from Hawaii and said, you know, heck, we're from here in the Gunnison Valley. Like, why are you buying sugarcane from Hawaii? Um, buy it from us. And that was a long time ago, maybe um, 12, gosh, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And now we've been sourcing from this company for a really long time. Um, so original ingredients really matter to what makes Montani different. Beautiful American grown sugar cane that is non-GMO, um, milled on site and at our facility that we work with in Louisiana. And it comes to us um, in really raw and unrefined form. Um, so it doesn't have to be stabilized for the, um, you know, to be in a Caribbean environment for a long time or any of that. I could go on. That's getting pretty geeky for a 30 minute interview. Um, but also the stills we use. Um, so I just, as you mentioned, um, opened a new expanded distillery here in the Gunnison Valley. Um, it's 10 times more capable of producing rum than our last distilling operation was. It took me two years of being a general contractor to bring this um, distillery expansion online through COVID and supply chain challenges. You can just imagine uh, it was not easy. It's still not easy. We've had to actually make some pretty tough moves. Um, we moved our rack house, which is where we store all of our barrels of aging rum out of county because of some issues that we encountered um, with the fire protection district. Um, not issues that I think were, you know, reasonable, but unfortunately unsurmountable. So uh, we now have, have storage in Delta County. Um, but in general, we've done a lot in this county to really um, establish our tradition of mountain rum, of high altitude rum, which affects every step of the process from fermentation to distillation, aging, bottling, the water we use, everything. So it's really American mountain rum and uh, Colorado rum. It's very widely perceived to be very unique in the business. You just busted a number of myths that were in my head around rum. And is it true, I mean, the um, kind of the roots of rum, would it be Caribbean? And is, has it always been sugarcane as kind of the base? Or? So yes to the second question, no to the first question. So it's okay. always been, um, it's always been sugarcane. Um, and it's always, uh, you know, you can't make rum from anything else legally in the world. So there are people who've tried to make things from sugar beets, um, and call them rum and they got in trouble with the federal, you know, government entities. Um, 
The first question is somewhat widely contested, and I have a very strong uh, set of feelings about it, and I have for a long time, and I speak about it publicly. Um, nobody really quite honestly knows where rum began. People believe it began in Barbados, and I understand that that was the beginning of the Caribbean tradition, and it was the beginning of the, you know, kind of what I would describe as the the Eastern tradition or not, not East, like far East, but like um, just the East coast of the United States and North America and South America and Central America. Um, I believe it began in India and I can pretty well document that it began in India. Um, Sugarcane was being grown. Um, distilling was happening. This was before copper, before, you know, back when it was in ceramic, um, it was being distilled from sugarcane. It was rum. Um, whether they called it rum or not is a different question. Um, but I do believe that that's the origin of the spirit. But the Caribbean is really where people associate. And unfortunately, the reason that that became true was because of the slave trade. Sugarcane is incredibly difficult to harvest by humans. Um, slaves were perpetually used in the Caribbean um, to, to harvest, um, and that just made it easier to produce. It was also something that they did with the byproducts of the sugar industry. So molasses is a, one of the throw was one of the throwaway parts of making sugar, and they determined it could be fermented and you could make uh, you could make a spirit out of it. Um, there was also rum distilling in Boston. So there was an, a tradition in the United States. And the, the tradition that I feel more connected to is that long before whiskey, um, people were bringing rum up into the mountains of Colorado from both the East and the West Coast. And they, they were using it as a, um, as a currency. So it would buy you I mean, on the on the not so pleasant side, a night with a prostitute, and it would also, it was you know, would buy you various different things in the economy of a of a mining town in Colorado, long before whiskey. So I actually believe rum is you know endemic <laughs> in a good way to um, Colorado before whiskey, bourbon, anything that we now associate as being here. Yeah. Cool. You're going to have to let me know if this question opens up a conversation that is not going to be contained within our last few minutes here, but is there an insight? So you've mentioned spirit a number of times, and I know that, you know, every spirit is slightly different, but when you're, when you are referencing spirit, what are you really referencing? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, rationally, logically, what I'm really referencing is any sort of, uh, you know, distilled liquid that's distilled typically to, and I would say, you know, 20 to 30% alcohol or higher, all your wines, all your beers, um, you know, your ports, things like that are typically below 20% alcohol. Um, so when I say a spirit, I, I really mean the, not the beers, not the wines, not the fortified wines, uh, things like that, but really the the um, higher proof alcohols like whiskey, bourbon, rum, gin, vodka, um, yeah. 
And in some cases, like the my favorites are the Italian Amaros and Eau de Vies in France and uh, a lot of these beautiful liqueurs that are from around the world, digestifs and aperitivos and things like that. Those are that's my jam. And I love to uh, make make cocktails and and introduce people to the beauties of some of those European traditions. Um, but when I say spirit, you know, it, it really, you can't divorce that from the extent to which um, there's a human factor in every single thing we do, bringing people together to consume. Um, I always hope in moderation, and I do recognize the challenges of alcohol. Um, I've, you know, reckoned with that in my career for more than 15 years. Um, I was a bartender for a long time. I've, you know, I'm very aware that alcohol is not for everyone, but there's really nothing that is for everyone. Living in a snowy mountain climate's not for everyone. Eating bread is not for everyone. You know, some people are allergic to blueberries, you know, so it's really figuring out like what can you consume safely for yourself but then coming together with other human beings in celebration, in the spirit of, you know, human interaction and the beauty of what we share as, um, as people, uh, I think that's a really, I think that's why the word became associated with alcohol was because it kind of produced this com community collective response in people that was shared and that took them out of their daily grind and put them into the moment, like really into the moment of where they were and who they were with and what they were doing. And that's what our tasting room here in Crested Butte celebrates is like bringing people together around delicious things um, so that they can be festive. <laughs> what are you excited about over the next few years? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I, you know, I see a lot of the things that I have been predicting would happen happening. And I'm really excited to see rum take its place on the international stage, uh, the way whiskey and scotch have over the years where they're celebrated as some of the very best things that you can consume in the alcohol beverage world. Rum has always been that good. It's just been really hard to find the good ones. Um, the good ones are now becoming much more available and on the shelf of your local liquor store. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm excited to see where Montani goes next. Um, as companies in this space grow, uh, we attract venture capital, which is something I've done in you know 2019. You attract the attention of larger makers. They want to kind of be part of your success or they want to be part of what you've been up to. Um, and I, you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see how that affects our business going forward, because it's also hard to stay small and survive in this business. Um, it's really cost intensive. Getting your product out is expensive. Getting people excited and, and having brand recognition is really expensive. Um, Growing is expensive and I've just, I'm on the painful side of a big growth process. So the painful side is when you've spent all the money, you're now trying to rack and bank all the, the rum that you're making with the new higher level of production that you haven't yet sold and can't sell for at least a year to, you know, four years, depending on how long you age. So there's a lot coming down the pike for us in terms of, you know, hurt and excitement and, um, 
being in a rural area, being in, you know, climate change situation, which has affected water uh, out in Riverland, which is our main location of our production. Um, there's a lot to, to reckon with over the next few years. And we'll just hope that we can uh, be vibrant and um, we're a leader in sustainability in the alcohol beverage world. And we hope we can continue to be a leader in that world with this new distillery that has some amazing new um, ways, you know, in which we're using closed loop water systems and biodigestion on site and a lot of things to really address the fact that the climate is changing around us and the, and we as a company have to be better. We're a certified B Corp, which means people can bank on the claims we make about environmental and social responsibility etc. Uh, that's, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> totally is. Um, second to last question for you, we'll wrap this conversation up, which I've enjoyed a ton. It's been very informative. Um, you know, from your place in Crested Butte, and, you know, definitely a small community, it includes the county, you know, from your perspective, how might businesses and community leaders work together even more for the greater good? How are we working together? Was that the question? How might we work together? How might we? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and those just, are you know, very different approaches. I mean, there's it the is. And yeah, to lean in like on that question in, in some context, like I I perceive a lot of our community uh fairly progressive. Like we work pretty well together. And there's always another level. I know, you know, housing is is a big kind of on the radar type of problem that is going to take a lot of collaboration. Um, but yeah, just how might we work together even more for the greater good? I think that's such an important question. You know, one of my roles historically was on the board of directors of, um, you know, regional economic development, because I believe so much in rural economic development in Colorado. I mean, I've been involved with this for 20, almost 25 years in different, wearing different hats, many of them volunteer hats. Um, I, you know, I really, this is an area that really concerns me more than ever. Um, there was a time when I really felt uh, a lot of traction uh, around um, making progress on issues of affordable housing, on, you know, pay and pay equity and gender equity and you know, diversity and inclusion and so many different things that I felt were essential to being good businesses. Um, what I'm seeing right now is that a lot of what I thought was happening is getting unraveled. And it's getting unraveled by a couple factors. One is, you know, say, for example, here in the upper valley of the Gunnison Valley, the extreme cost of, um, of construction, the extreme cost of building materials, land, everything. So even if you've set aside land to do an affordable project, which our visionary um, community and, and county have, you know, so we have good land. I am sitting in a in a sustainable house, 1,300 square feet that I built on um, workforce and in, as part of a workforce community for people who live and work in this community year round. Um, it's amazing what has historically been done, but how do you do that 
when you can't afford to build it. We have a project that's under construction that has not been finished because it went over budget and they had to bring it to a halt and the, the contractor left the project. Um, so how do we do that? Uh, when all these forces are so incredibly against us. So affordable housing being a big one, how do we pay people and give them the benefits that they deserve in a community like this when the cost of healthcare is literally skyrocketing? Of course, I just got my new um, you know, health insurance benefits costs for 2023, and I'm experiencing huge increases. As a small business, I want to provide health insurance to my employees, but it's really hard to do. Um, you know, in terms of wages, I really want to pay people on a year-round basis what they ought to be making in any community around the country um, so that they can put their kids through college like I had to do, so that they can, um, you know, take a vacation, have paid time off, all of those things. But wow, it's so hard to piece that together when you're in these incredibly fluctuating economic circumstances. And then the other thing that I really struggle with is that we're so much better at recruiting new companies and talking to new companies and giving them incentives. Um, and we're not always, and I'm not talking about just the Gunnison Valley, I'm talking about the world, but the U.S., we're often like, oh, but you guys who've been here for 10 years, you guys sink or swim, and we're going to go recruit and give all kinds of tax incentives and and benefits and assistance and technical resources to these, you know, up and coming startups. And I'm like, we have to do both. Um, we have to do both. And so I've been working really hard to be present and mentor some of the new startups in the Gunnison Valley, but I've also really recognize that like we need to have supportive approaches for the companies that are already here and trying desperately to stay here when the the pressure to just go operate somewhere cheaper where it's easier for people to find housing where it's easier to recruit people um yeah it those those are big issues that we could spend a you know five days talking about and and maybe only come up with one or two solutions yeah those are those are big for sure and when you're talking about the incentivizing for for new companies versus investing in established already here companies it just reminds me of how often you know business owners will spend money in new marketing strategies or whatever to recruit new customers when they can do much better at retaining their current customer base and, and serving them. And, and that's just a another reminder there. Um, yeah. Well, that's and I know I, we probably don't have time to talk about it, but maybe, you know, someday in the future, you know, I know your company's in an expansion mode too. So you and I are here in the Gunnison Valley expanding. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, you know, <laughs> then we deal with all kinds of the challenges of expansion, which are that we can't keep our arms around the whole company anymore. We need good help. We need high level help. Do we outsource that, you know, like accounting, bookkeeping, audits, things like that. Um, do we outsource that outside the county? Do we try to keep it here? Um, can we find the expertise in the Gunnison Valley that we need 
to keep that work here. Um, they're just, you know, expansion has its own really challenging elements. And yet it is the best thing for our local economy that you and I are selling things and doing things outside the county, but bringing the revenue from that back here, primary income, that starts a beautiful cycle of people being able to earn wages, spend them in our local restaurants, you know, have vibrant families here, own houses, be here year round. It's just, it's a, it's a virtuous circle. Yes, thanks to all that. <laughs> I know we could talk for hours and hours, Karen, um, but we're going to wrap this one up. How do people reach out? How do they stay in touch with Montagna and, and what's going on and, and connect with you? So we have a really beautiful website that I am not in charge of. So I'm speaking on behalf of my amazing staff who does that um, at montanyarum.com. So Montagna has a walk, M-O-N-T-A-N-Y-A, rum.com. And then um, unlike a lot of people in business with employees and, you know, growing companies, I'm really accessible. You can call our phone number, hit extension one, and you will come to me. Um, you know, email is always a great way. Karen at Montagna Rum, or it's better to do Karen at MontanyaDistillers.com. And then, um, our tasting room in Crested Butte is like a really lovely portal into our company. So we have this well-trained staff who can taste people in the rum and tell them our story and help them to understand how and why we do what we do here in Crested Butte. Um, so that's really fun. And then um, we, you know, I'm out on the road all the time. So I get around. Um, we have distribution in 44 states in the U.S. and seven countries overseas. So if, you know, depending on where people are, they could usually just track my schedule at KarenHoskin.com um, and find out, you know, where to come see a, a speech or a presentation or attend a tasting that we're doing or some sort of party or event. So. We'll be sure to drop all those things into our show notes and um, share this widely and proudly. And Karen, thank you so much for the conversation today. It was very educational and inspiring. And I'm excited to see where you go and where Montagna goes. And I'm just glad that you're here in this valley. Thank you. You too. Thanks for my beautiful garage door on my house. I love it. <laughs> you bet. You're absolutely welcome. Karen, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care.